Now, let's see. It all set? Voila. Song of Solomon. Chapter 7. There we go. Okay. Well, let's have another word of prayer and then we'll get into our study. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for all of the Bible, all 66 wonderful books. Lord, tonight we're in uh, the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, as you well know. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, please uh, show us something tonight that can be applied to our hearts and lives and souls. Lord, that would cause us to love you more and to be more faithful to you and to serve you better. We do pray your hedge of protection, please, around us tonight. And uh, Father, help us to become better prayer warriors. Oh, if there's anything that the church needs to do in these last days is to pray. And to pray down the power of God. Uh, help us, we pray, this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's see. For an uh, outline here, we have uh, God beginning. Now, this is actually a continuation of uh, chapter... Uh, 6 and verse 4. Uh, once again, remember that uh, it's a love sonnet, a uh, not really a sonnet, but it is a, a poem, it's Hebrew poetry, uh, from Solomon to his bride. And uh, personally, I believe it was to his very first wife. Uh, he ended up, as you know, with a lot. Uh, wow. A thousand wives and concubines. I can't even imagine what that would look like. Um, I don't know, I've, I've, I've seen uh, pictures of a, some sultan king and a bunch of women in his harem, but that's only been maybe 20 or 30. <laughs> I cannot imagine what a thousand, what that would look like. I don't know, but um, I don't have to know. Um, Solomon, I think, uh, wrote this in his uh, younger years uh, under the inspiration of God, obviously. And uh, uh, Solomon is sort of likened unto God, and his bride is likened unto Israel, God's people. And so there's tremendous application there for us. So um, we, uh, we get into uh, chapter 7, and uh, he begins. Um, How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. Now Solomon... Uh, describes his beautiful wife for the third time now. The first two times were in, once in chapter 4 and once in chapter 6. And uh, this third time is by far uh, the most intimate. And it suggests, uh, when we make the application, the tremendous love that uh, Solomon had for his wife, the tremendous love that the Lord Jesus has for his church. Tremendous love. He loves us fully and completely. And for sure, Jesus is able to find us lovelier than we are able to find him. He is so much wiser. And um, we are still a work in progress, aren't we? Well, um, back in chapter 5, starting in verse 10, you have um, the bride speaking. And the bride goes on for the next several verses to the end of chapter 5, describing Solomon. And she uses ten analogies 
His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven, and so on. There's ten of them there. Well, now, here in chapter 7, Solomon uses ten analogies to describe his bride. And this has an interesting suggestion. One commentator I read suggested that if we will honor Jesus, he will honor us. You see, in chapter 5, the bride honored her husband, and now the husband is honoring the bride. So it is a, a good principle that you reap what you sow. If we will honor our Lord Jesus, he will abundantly honor us. Well, verse 1, we have here actually a new title that he bestows upon her. He says, O prince's daughter. Now, uh, put a marker there, please, in Song of Solomon. Turn back a few pages to Psalms and go to Psalm 45, if you would, please. Something interesting I'd like to point out. Psalm 45. Give you just half a moment there. Psalm 45, and here we have, uh, let's see, Heart, verse 10, hearken, O daughter, now this is a reference to Israel, and consider and, and incline thine ear, forget also thine own people and thy father's house, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. So it's talking about Israel to to worship God, and that God greatly desires the beauty of his people here in verse, verse 11. Uh, but verse uh, 13 is what I'd like you to see. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. And so you can see that Israel is sort of likened unto uh, the king's daughter. We're getting sort of into a royal kind of... Uh, uh, Analogy. So go back to Song of Solomon. We've got a brand new um, title that Solomon bestows upon his bride. <clears throat> and it's O Prince's Daughter. Now God's people in the scriptures are referred to as royalty. Why? Because they are begotten of God himself. And he is the king of kings, isn't he? And so his children then become royalty. Now you all know that. Uh, theologically, you know that in your heads. Some days we sure don't feel like king's kids, do we? Some days, you know, we feel like we've been kind of beaten up, and other days we feel far from God. And But the truth of the matter is, if we're born again, we're part of God's family, and that does make us royalty. And so it's a wonderful analogy here. We are begotten of God himself. But remember, this bride had humble origins. And so do we. We got uh, saved out of the scrap heap, if you will. The slave market of sin. That's where the Lord found us and saved us out of that. We became sons and daughters, kings and queens of God. So there's royalty there. Isn't that interesting? Um, so Solomon starts in verse 1 with her feet. And uh, some commentators think that this was a private dance that she gave to Solomon. 
Other commentators think that it was a kind of a public dance. I don't think it was public. Uh, as we get into the verses, it's uh, something that's um, uh, not, it's not what you do in public. And so I think that if it was a dance, it was something that she did for her husband in private. But Solomon starts with her feet here in verse 1. And he says, how beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. Um, perhaps there's a comparison here to the beautiful feet that Isaiah spoke of sometime later in Isaiah 52, 7. About uh, soul winning, soul winner's feet. Do you remember reading that verse? How beautiful are the feet of them on the mountains that publish good tidings and all that? It's quoted by Paul in the New Testament. So maybe there's a comparison there uh, for the church, for us. Uh, some, some days, um, you know, we never think of our feet at all. We just put on socks and shoes and away we go. But um, the, the Bible bears witness that there, there's a way to have beautiful feet. And uh, one way, I think, is to uh, uh, publish the gospel, to let others know. When you give out a tract, when you walk over to someone or invite them to church or something, you're using your feet. And um, if I understand the Bible right, that makes your feet beautiful, at least in the eyes of God. And then, of course, there are feet uh, that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's in Ephesians 6.15. And those have got to be beautiful feet as well in the eyes of God. Um, but Solomon doesn't stop at her feet. He moves up. And he says in verse 1, The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. And so Solomon now refers to the joints of her thighs. Uh, perhaps he's referring to the area of her knees. I got thinking about this, and maybe he's just talking about her legs. Maybe he's just trying to say that she's got nice legs. But something interesting and i got to kind of click through this. So I'm just going to show you to get to the next slide there. But Israel picks up in verse 10. We'll get back to that. But this, this is what I want you to see. Whoa, can you see that all right? Pretty bright back there. Can you make out what that is? Okay. Where'd my pointer go? There it is. Um, all right, here we are. Here's a leg of a man, a leg of a woman. And I just want you to notice something. The uh, femur bone here and the tibia comes down here. And the angle of the two of them, on men it's about 12 degrees, on women it's about 16 degrees. So it's a sharper angle. And so uh, this is just speculation, that's all it is. In fact, most of what we're doing in the book of Song of Solomon is somewhat, you know, speculative because there are hundreds of ideas and some of them really weird, really strange. I'm not even going to go there. But we're just kind of speculating a bit here. But he does make reference here to his wife's legs. And it's interesting how he words it. The joints of thy thighs are like jewels the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Now, God made us fearfully and wonderfully, right? And uh, the, average, the average guy will tell you that uh, uh, they like the look of the average girl. 
And so maybe what Solomon was referring to was this bit of a steep incline here. And it just gives shape. A little bit of shape here. So anyhow, that's just a thought. That's all it is. And as I say, maybe all he's saying is she's got nice legs. <laughs> Don't know. We'll find out one day. Well, let's get into verse 2. And now he talks about her navel, her belly button. Thy navel is like a round goblet, which wanteth not liqueur or liquor. Now, her navel is likened to a cup or a goblet. Uh, it's possible that Solomon may have had in mind something his father wrote back in Psalm 23, verse 5. My cup runneth over. There's a thought there. He may have had something like that. Interestingly, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3 and verse 8, he said, the fear of the Lord is, uh, is, is said to be health to the navel. Health to the navel. Those are the words he used. The fear of the Lord is health to the navel. Isn't that interesting? And so he's complimenting um, her belly button. Now, he goes on. And he says, um, thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Now, um, that doesn't sound too much like a compliment, I suppose, you know, right off the bat. Someone might say, well, he's calling her overweight or fat or something. I don't think he is. I don't think the heap he's got in mind, you know, is like a big haystack. I don't think it's like that at all. Uh, when they would uh, beat out the, uh, the grain and all that and get the wheat and they would winnow this thing. And you know the process of winnowing. They'd throw the mixture up into the uh, air and the wind would blow the chaff away and the pure uh, wheat grain would fall to the ground. And after, you know, a few hours of doing this, they were left with pure, um, pure wheat. And it wasn't a great big, you know, haystack, but it had this gentle kind of inclined to it. And so uh, he was making a, uh, a likening uh, that her belly was like a heap of wheat and possibly in reference to the flowing texture of it. I've seen pictures of, of wheat, these mounds of wheat, and it looks very luxurious. And I imagine that if you were to run your hand through it, it would have a very luxurious feel to it. So uh, possibly that. And then he goes on and uh, he says that it's set about with lilies. And again, there's, it's just pure speculation, but possibly his bride adorned herself somehow with flowers. That's, I guess, a safe, a safe way. Well, let's get on with it here in verse 3. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. And so... Um, uh, again, uh, I tried to check out a few uh, commentators on this, and um, boy, I read some really strange stuff, but uh, it seems that uh, the conservative commentators seem to suggest that it emphasizes her innocence and her attraction to him. And I think that's pretty fair, and I think we can leave it at that. And verses 4 and 5 he now starts concentrating on her face and her head. You see, she, he started at her feet and he's worked his way up and he's up at her head now. 
Thy neck is as a tower of ivory, thine eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabbin. Uh, thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Thine head upon thee is like Carmel, uh, and the hair of thine head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. So, wow, what's he mean by all of this? Well, um, a few suggestions. That her neck shows posture and strength of character. Um, I would suggest that she's not a sloucher. She doesn't walk around, you know, all slouched over. But that she uh, keeps her shoulders back and her neck is something like a, a tower. At least it seems to show posture and strength. Her eyes were like the fish pools. Those were the reservoirs in the city of Heshbon, which is about 50 miles away from Jerusalem. And um, these waters were not uh, fed by springs so that they weren't all excited and bubbly, but they were calm and deep. So that's interesting. Were they full of fish? I don't know. Um, I kind of don't think so, but they were called fish pools. Uh, her nose is likened to a tower. Imagine that. A tower. Uh, a tower that faces Damascus. Damascus is the capital city of Syria. Uh, to me, that just sounds regal. There's something regal about it. So he's even complimenting the shape of her nose. A lot of people don't like the shape of their nose. You know, a lot of people, uh, most of us, I guess, when we look in the mirror, we think now, if I could, you know, have a magic wand, right? I think I would change this and move this over here <laughs> and get a new one of these, you know. We do that sort of thing. So there's no perfect human. No perfect human at all. Um, we're all deficient in some way, shape, or form. And I think God does that as part of his design. He does that on purpose. Uh, but here's a gal who, uh, in the eyes of her husband, sounds perfect. I don't think they had plastic surgery back then. What do you think? Probably not. But they did have makeup. And I think that she uh, used that. Uh, I think we talked about uh, her having dove's eyes. You remember that? And so there may have been some use of makeup back then. They certainly had. Uh, if you remember the seeing pictures of the, uh, the pharaoh the women under Pharaoh, you know, 4,000 years ago, sort of thing. And it shows them with uh, eyeliner and things like that. So they had, they had makeup and different things like that. Uh, so anyhow, uh, we move on now to her head is likened unto Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel. I've been to Mount Carmel. And I didn't see her head, but I did take a look out. And from Mount Carmel, you can look out and you can see the Jezreel Valley and all that. It's very majestic. It's very beautiful. So her head is exalted like Mount Carmel. It's almost like this, this young lady who had humble beginnings uh, has just kind of become quite the princess with a lot of breeding. And then he says that her hair is purple. There's a lot of young people today that uh, have walk around with purple hair. How many have ever seen anyone with purple hair? Yeah, well, it doesn't mean the same thing as what Solomon's got in mind here. Purple was a very expensive color. And typically only wealthy people and the royal people were able to afford it. Uh, it was uh, like a, a deep um, uh, crimson like in, in that area of hue. 
and they would have to uh, double dip or triple dip the garments in this dye. It was expensive dye because it was made from tiny little sea creatures uh, off the Mediterranean there. They would gather these and uh, they'd crush them and that, that's how they would get this color and they would dye the uh, garments in that and then they'd have to uh, double dye them or dip them, and triple dip them sometimes. And so it was expensive to do. And it was only done on expensive kind of cloth. So it was only wealthy people. So I think what he's saying here is that she didn't exactly have purple hair, you know, so you know, get that out of your mind, but rather that her hair was royal. It, she, she, she really did it up good. However the ladies did their hair back then, uh, they, boy, this lady really did it well. I remember reading about uh, Roman times from 2,000 years ago uh, in some of the Roman cities, um, Pompeii, for example, uh, in different parts of uh, throughout Italy and so on, in the Roman Empire, uh, some of the wealthy, wealthy ladies would spend all day and they'd have two uh, experienced slave girls working on their hair. And uh, boy, oh boy, you know, the hairdos that those ladies had after having spent the entire day with two basically professionals working on their hair. And then they would parade around with this incredible head of hair. Well, I don't know if um, our princess went that far, but in the eyes of her husband, he liked her hair. Interesting, isn't it? Now, Solomon uses the next four verses to start describing his desire toward her. And so in verse 6, um, her delights seem to be at the heart um, well, let's look at it here, verse 6. How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights. And I think that's the key word there. Because he's got in mind here uh, how delighted he is with her and the things about her. Now, it's all in a very physical context. But remember, the marriage bed is undefiled. And we have to keep that in mind. These are not uh, two uh, young teenagers doing something in the back of a car. This is... a uh, uh, a grown couple, two young adults, and they're properly married, husband and wife. And she's kept herself pure, um, referred to as an enclosed garden at one point, kept herself pure uh, for, uh, the, for Solomon, for the marriage. And so I think the key word in verse 6, as I say, is uh, her delights. So let's look here at uh, verses uh, 7 and 8. Thy this thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breast to cl clusters of grapes. I said I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine, and the smell of thy nose like apples. So her stature here, uh, with the, like the, uh, the palm tree, her stature indicates that she stands tall and noble. Um, her breasts were a source of delight to him. He wanted to embrace her. And uh, turn back to Proverbs. <clears throat> we'll just take a look at uh, something Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 5. Verse 
Proverbs chapter 5, and it's, it's good advice given to uh, husbands, husbands and wives, mainly husbands. Uh, verse, verse, where we go? There it is. Um, let's start here in verse um, 18. It actually begins in verse 15. Drink waters out of thine own cistern. Verse 18, let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. The word ravish means to seize and carry off by force. And it indicates that that um, is more the wife doing that to the husband rather than the husband doing that to the wife. I think wives like that to be done to them sometimes, but I think this is the uh, uh, optimum marriage relationship where the wife feels confident. Uh, in a lot of um, marriage situations, the wives are uh, very, very unconfident and uh, afraid to express their opinions, their true feelings and so on, because their husband will bark at them or bite their head off or something. And so it restricts them uh, they're not able to express themselves and express their desire toward their husband. So you get a lot of stifling going on. But here in a pure context, uh, what Solomon is saying is, um, Be thou ravished always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? So uh, the bosom uh, is... Um, uh, important area in marriage and according to verse 6 go back to song of solomon it was part of uh, her delights and so um, he wanted to embrace her then he said here that her nose smelled like apples apples are healthy and pleasant and he said her nose smelled like apples and i read uh, an interesting comment that when god formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life that life was a sweet smell to god that's an interesting thought isn't it when god breathed the breath of life into adam's nostrils life is a sweet thing to god you know the the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal what Say it. Life. Right. And so life is a precious thing with God. And I think it's something that is sweet to him. Um, if Jesus has given you life, not just physical, but eternal life, then that's, that's a sweet thing in his nostrils. He would find that very sweet. Now, verse 9, he writes and says, The roof of thy mouth... Uh, that's something that men don't usually compliment their wives about. The roof of thy mouth, like the best wine for my beloved, that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. And so the roof of her mouth was like the best wine. Now the idea here has nothing to do with alcohol, because alcohol is actually very bitter. That's what the taste of alcohol is. Very, very bitter. That's why they got to keep mixing it with all these other things to try and hide that bitter, bitter taste. It's worse than cod liver oil. Oh. And they say, how do you know that, Pastor? 
uh, because I used to be a Philistine, you know, in my unsaved days, and I used to swim in the stuff. So I'm familiar with the, uh, the wretched uh, rot, gut rot. Anyhow, alcohol is very bitter, but new wine means that it's still full of sugar. That's what it means. New wine doesn't have alcohol in it. New wine is full of sugar. It's like sweet grape juice. And so that's what he's getting at here. It's the sweetness of it, the sweet taste of it. Uh, he says the, the, that it um, uh, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. Almost like it's lip smacking good, I guess. But th this is the, the description that he gives of his wife. And that uh, these are, are her delights. And he wanted just to run up and embrace her. Well, now the narrative changes to, to the bride. And she begins to speak. Verse 10. The bride now expresses her great desire toward her husband. I am my beloved's. And his desire is toward me. Not every wife in the world can say that. This one could. She reaffirms that she belongs to him. And she joyously basks in his desire for her. You see, in the context of marriage, it's 101% okay for this kind of behavior. 101% okay. That's what it was meant for. And so she just basks in the fact that he desires her so much. And again, because we've taken time to study through the book, it's not just the physical attraction, but uh, he loves her as a person. Verse 11, she now invites Solomon. And uh, she says, come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. And so she invites Solomon to go away with her on a weekend getaway to the countryside. And uh, a wonderful uh, invitation that you and I can extend to our wonderful Savior Jesus. This is just a little application I'm making here along the way. But a wonderful invitation that you and I can give to our Savior Jesus is to get away together with him in the prayer closet. That would be a great place to steal away, to slip away and be alone with the Lord Jesus. Now, verse 12 talks about springtime. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. Springtime brings with it the thoughts of love. There's an old saying that in the time of spring, a young man's heart turns to thoughts of love. And so it does bring thoughts of love, and she is willing to get up early. How about that? She's willing to get up early. She says, there I will give thee my loves. And uh, there's an invitation likely to appeal to any husband. Uh, she gives herself to him. And then she says something interesting in verse 13. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gate are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. Mandrakes. Mandrakes were thought to be the aphrodisiac in the ancient world. The word English word mandrake comes from a Greek word 
mandragoras. And what it means is the plant of humans. It's interesting. Uh, mandrake, it's the plant of humans. Because the forked root is thought to resemble the human form. And it was fabled that when you pull one of these from the ground, it utters a shriek. I'm sure it's a fable. But anyhow, fables you know, grow up with these things, and that's how it got its name. Jacob, back in Genesis chapter 30, it says that Jacob uh, used them to uh, promote fertility. I believe that was Jacob, wasn't it? Let me just double check that. I don't want to give you a wrong... Oh, no, maybe it wasn't Jacob. It was his wife. Ah, that's right. That's right. He had something else going. It was his wife that got the uh, the mandrakes. Yeah, because her kid brought him in, found these mandrakes and brought him in. Okay, that that was um, that was in chapter thirty. There you go. So you can check that out on your own. Then she finishes by saying all manner of pleasant fruits. And again, maybe perhaps this simply means delightful things that pertain to love. Now, the chapter is to be continued because into chapter 8, we, we have her still uh, speaking. And we're going to look at that, God willing, next week. But let's make a conclusion here. From this chapter, we can see the constant... Um, intense love that Solomon had for his bride. And we can easily make that comparison with the Lord Jesus and his people. Our Lord Jesus is constantly telling us in the Bible that he loves us. Over and over we're told that. That's wonderful. Constantly the Holy Spirit reaffirms that to our hearts over and over. The Lord's love for us. Now that's very, very important between husbands and wives. But it's very important between the Lord Jesus and us. If we wondered and doubted and questioned his love, we'd be in a mess. But we, we keep preaching the Bible, which tells us his love for us, and the Holy Spirit keeps bringing that home to our hearts. Now, the bride had quite an appeal to her husband. And did you know that Christ's bride, us, we have quite an appeal to our Lord Jesus, to our future husband, to the bridegroom, to the Lord Jesus. We have an appeal to Christ, and our delights uh, are toward him. It's not a physical thing, but it's a thing of the heart and the soul. Let me read what I mean. Psalm 29.2, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Listen, worship the Lord in the beauty of what? Holiness. Psalms 96.9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 3. Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. Ephesians 5.27. Talking about Jesus and the church, the bride and the bridegroom. That he, that's Jesus, might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In 1 Peter 1, 16, 
It is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Never ever underestimate the powerful appeal of holiness to God. God is so motivated, He is so moved when we present ourselves to Him in holiness. When we purposely wash the defilement of the world off us. When we purpose, and that's, that's through this book here, by the way. As, as you read and read the scriptures and study the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, think about the scriptures, you purify yourself. And the defilement of the world just washes off you. That's why you need to read it every day. Just like you need to wash your hands, wash your face, bath or shower, wash your hair, whatever, every day. Uh, some parts uh, of the world are dirtier than others. Some days the wind blows dust more. We have to wash a little bit more. Um, when flu season, cold season is upon us, we're supposed to be washing our hands more with soap to cleanse us. And we have to wash ourselves daily with the water of the word. And it's so very important that we be reading our Bible every day, every day, every day reading our Bible. If you're not reading your Bible, you're walking around spiritually dirty. It's normal for us to get dirty, but what should also be normal is for us to cleanse ourselves. And we can only do that reading the Bible and praying. So never underestimate the powerful appeal that holiness has upon God. He absolutely loves it. God absolutely desires it. The Lord Jesus gets thrilled. He gets moved. He gets motivated when he sees us Worshiping him in holiness. It motivates the Lord Jesus to love us more and to answer more of our prayers. Is it any wonder that the high priest used to wear a crown on his head and on the crown was written the words holiness unto the Lord? Interesting, isn't it? All right, let's pray.